Happy New Year. Good to see you guys. Praise the Lord. How many of you remember what you were like before the Lord came to you and turned your heart towards him? Some of you were only like five years old, so you probably don't remember much. But for the rest of us, we remember how vulgar, filled with pride, angry, lustful, etc., etc., fill in the blank. We remember how we were. We were following the course of this world, following after the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians 2, verse 3 uh, says, and we were by nature children of wrath. We were delivered into a world of darkness. We were born in sin, as Psalms uh, chapters 51 and 58 uh, tell us. In this world of darkness, though, where Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 informs us that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks after God or seeks for God. In that world, God had to send the ultimate and eternal light, his son, to be the light of the world. John chapter 1, verse 5 says, He, speaking of Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness of this world has not overcome him. In the Old Testament, we get a small picture of what Jesus would do when he came into the world. In the pitch black darkness, and I want you to get the, the image in your mind, the pitch black darkness of the wilderness, the Lord went before the children of Israel in a pillar of fire by night, ensuring they would get to their next destination. Likewise, in the pitch black darkness of this world, Jesus is the light that leads his people to the heavenly presence of their father, God. The darkness represents the brokenness of this world, a world of pain, a world of suffering, a world of sin, a world of death. However, Jesus, he is the true savior who will save his people from pain, from suffering, from sin, and from death. Just as the, the, the first light of dawn brings the promise of a new day, the coming of Jesus brings the promise of eternal life, a new life a life of joy, a life of everlasting peace, a never-ending life. As Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me and lives shall never die. What a promise, what a promise. Jesus being the light of the world, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. The thought of that would have been totally mind-blowing to someone like the Apostle Matthew, who was a Jew's Jew. But as we'll see today, very early in Jesus' ministry, Matthew himself declared that Jesus was a light to the Gentiles. If you're not already there, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 17 today. Matthew chapter 4, 
12 through 17. After Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, which is where we left off, in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 4, a certain amount of time has passed. We don't see it in Matthew's gospel, but between verses 11 and 12, a few things have taken place. For instance, after his temptation, there's the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine. There's the cleansing of the temple where they turned his father's house into a den of thieves. Then you have the late night meeting with Nicodemus where he says, you must be born again. Then there's Jesus with his disciples who were baptizing in the Judean countryside. And finally, there's the last testimony of, uh, on record of John the Baptist exalting Jesus and rebuking Herod before he is arrested. And that's where Matthew picks it up. I have titled this sermon, The Light Shines in the Darkness. Please follow along as I read Matthew chapter four, verses 12 through 17. This is the holy word of God. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. <clears throat> And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Let us pray. Sorry, verse 17, sorry. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let us pray. Father, I need you to work through me this morning, Lord. I need you to help me to speak clearly and boldly your word. May my boldness come from the accuracy of your word and not anything in me. Please Allow your spirit to work in all of us, that the word would not just be a lecture going forth, but actually a transformation that takes place in us, invoking newness of life, Lord God, sanctification, and a greater love for your son Christ and yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Although Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, Nazareth was his home base. In Nazareth is where he was educated. It is also where he would uh, read scripture on the Sabbath. At first, the crowds marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. But very soon, they would become displeased with him until eventually they chased him out of their city. And according to Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 31, some of you, if you want, or all of you, if you want, you can turn there. I'll be going through that in a, in a minute. But after he read from Isaiah on one Sabbath day, what we call verse, uh, chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, the place where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to say that liberty liberty, those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, then sat down and rolled up the scripture and gave it back to the attendant. He told them, 
Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow, can you get the, get the picture? Right, he stands up, he reads from this powerful text, and then he sits down. Cool. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. At first, they were astounded. Like, that was awesome. That, that was great. The scripture, Luke chapter 4, verse 22, literally says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then something happened. A question began to circulate around the synagogue. They started asking, Is not this Joseph's son? What happened? Right? What happened to the gracious words that were coming from his mouth just a moment ago? The noetic effects of sin began to take place. They came into play. The noetic effects of sin have nothing to do with Noah. It's, it's when the truth of God is distorted and corrupted because our hearts and minds have been distorted and corrupted by sin. We think we're wise, but our logic is twisted when it comes to the things of God. When they heard the pure truth from Jesus as he quoted a part of Isaiah chapter 61, it rang true and they marveled. But their sinful human logic took over and would bring them condemnation. Listen to what Jesus says after their reasoning that he was just Joseph's son. Because they were like, we know him. He's nobody special. I want you to remember that this is his hometown. And the prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. So he says to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And he's referring to the time that he would be on the cross. And the people will say, he saved others? He cannot save himself, Matthew 27, 42. In other words, Savior, save yourself. Jesus goes on to tell them in Luke chapter 4, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine over, uh, came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. Quick comment, that's Gentile territory to a woman who was a widow and a Gentile. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile from a Gentile land. Keep that in mind. It's going to come, to, come into play in a little bit. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away and he went to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. So in verse 12 of our text back in Matthew chapter 4 tells us that when John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. We see there are a couple of things going on that initiates Jesus' transition from Nazareth of Galilee to Capernaum of Galilee. John's arrest and the attempted murder on his life. 
Then again, in verse 13, when Matthew writes, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. We understand why. From an earthly standpoint, Jesus being driven out of Nazareth and ending up in this part of Capernaum by the sea seems like a totally human-initiated incident. As if the only reason he ended up in Capernaum is because of the persecution against John and religious people forcing him out of Nazareth. Here's where human responsibility meets God's sovereign will. Because the next verse, verse 14, informs us that the reason he was there was so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah must be fulfilled. And we see fulfilled. Wait a minute. Wasn't it those wicked and violent people in Nazareth who were angry with Jesus and desired to cast him down from the brow of a hill, one of the reasons he had to leave? And I believe that if some of us were there as followers of Jesus, walking with him on our way to Capernaum, just out of Nazareth, we would be complaining the whole way. Those evil and no good heathen. I can't believe they put us out. We would put all of the blame on the people and stew in our anger because we continuously forget the sovereignty and providence of God. We forget that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1, 11. We see evil people getting their way and we forget Solomon's words way back in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 12 that though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. I am astounded at how many people claim to fear God but they are actually fearful of men and women and their agendas. People who one minute are proclaiming the sovereignty, providence, and power of an omniscient and omnipresent God who will never leave them nor forsake them are the very next minute saying things like, Oh my God, I can't believe they're going to tear this country apart. They're going to destroy the churches. You wait and see. The last time I checked, the church belongs to Jesus Christ because it was paid for by his blood. So he does what he wills with his church. When we look at one of the most intense periods of persecution upon the church, which was the last decade of the first century, near the end of the emperor Domitian's reign, the book of Revelation was given to the church to strengthen and assure them that Jesus is in control. To each of the seven churches named within the book, Jesus showed his sovereignty and power over each church's influence and existence, regardless of who was in earthly power and authority. And according to John Fox's Book of Martyrs, the emperor Domitian was naturally inclined to evil. After killing his own brother, he initiated the second persecution against the Christians. In his rage, he put to death some of the Roman senators, some through malice and some just because he wanted to take their estate. 
He then commanded the whole lineage of David, all he could find, all he knew about, to be put to death. John Fox writes, among the numerous martyrs that suffered during this persecution was Simeon, Bishop of Jerusalem, who was crucified, and the Apostle John, who was boiled in oil and afterward banished to Patmos. Soon after, a law was made that no Christian, once brought before the tribunal, should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion. This is what the church was facing from this wicked emperor who just exuded cruelty and evil. And Jesus, ever so kind, ever so loving, gave his church the book of Revelation. A book filled with warnings, yet had hope and encouragement. The book depicts Jesus as the risen, glorified Savior, ministering among the churches, as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, as the Alpha and the Omega, as the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, as a Son of Man and the Son of God, as the one who was dead but now is alive forevermore, as the one who is holy and true, as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, as the Lamb in heaven with authority to open the seals, representing the title deed to the earth, as the Lamb on the throne, as the Messiah who will reign forever, as the majestic King of kings and Lord of lords, returning in glorious splendor to conquer his foes, and as the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Yet some people say, I'm afraid to read Revelation. God is too good. God is too good. And as glorious as Jesus is, he's still tender towards his faithful flock. Listen to the words of comfort he gives to the small church in Philadelphia. Coming from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Even as they were in the midst of a perverse and wicked government, he tells them that he is the one who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. He, tell, he then tells them, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. The scripture in Ephesians 6.12 tells us, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. When you have this picture of Jesus controlling every earthly king, watching over every church under his name, and then we have the scripture telling us that we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities in, in, in cosmic places and heavenly places. The, the question is, why are you so fearful? Jesus is ruling. Why are you afraid? If you say you're not afraid, but you're angry, your speech betrays you. And here's why. Some of you watch the news way too much. <laughs> way too much even though you say it makes you angry. 
used to put it on two, three times a day. I get so angry. Go play golf. Do something else. <laughs> but you put the news on. Do you see what they're saying? Turn it off. Turn it off. Right? Because you keep hearing the same thing. They're going to tear the country apart. They're going to take away your rights. Just you wait and see. If you are over 50, you have lived through some corrupt administrations, yet I can almost guarantee that you are doing better now than your parents were doing. How does that happen? God is in control. Just believe it. Stop fighting that. Stop fighting that. Right? In reality, the fear of this happening is manifesting itself as anger within you, rage even, and has blinded you to the sovereignty and providence of God. That's out the window. It's all about people and what people are doing. The cosmic powers over this present darkness, we can't see. The spiritual forces of evil, we can't touch. But God can. So we pray. We pray to the one who can see them and arrest them. Redirect them. Cast them into hell even now. Because he's God. We see God's help to bring biblical justice and righteousness so we may lead a, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Shouldn't that be our concern? What pleases God? Right? 2 Corinthians 5, 9, whether absent or present, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. That should be our aim. Should we be grieved and mourn at the depravity and abominations we see all around us? Yes, but it must not cause us to engage in corrosive behavior and destructive language which seeks to destroy people as opposed to correction and righteous judgment which reveals the true need for a savior and points them to Christ. Points them to Christ. Contrary to popular opinion, it's not about you. It's not about your rights. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about Christ and him being exalted, not you. Jesus is the one who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one opens. Ultimately, that portion of scripture is speaking about salvation and our entrance into the kingdom. No one can shut that door. Jesus has opened it. But isn't that what it's all about? Right? Why are we here? Singing, praying, listening to sermons, week in and week out, fellowshipping. All of that has little value if there is no salvation for us at the end. If there's no salvation for you at the end, all of that, it, it means nothing. Right? It may feel good for a little while, but if you have not been conformed into the image of Christ through salvation, through being born again, through the internal work of God that he gives and does to everyone who believes in him, everything else is just show. It's an outer case, but inside 
you're still filled with dead, dead man's bones. You need an inner work, an inner work to be done. It's the gospel that brings salvation, that gives these things real meaning. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Right? And I want you to think about this. God didn't deliver his people out of bondage to Egypt and Pharaoh and leave them there. But in a true picture of the personal, personal work of God concerning our salvation, God fought every battle and provided for every need to bring the nation of Israel into the promised land. Likewise, God didn't deliver us from bondage to sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and leave us there. Even now, God fights our every battle and provides for our every need. And because the eternal promise of the salvation we have in our union with Christ and the assurance that he has done all the work to secure it, we can overcome sorrows and uncertainty. We can push through sickness and the death of loved ones. Bad marriages, failed marriages, bad governments, failing economies, all the while loving our neighbors and repenting from sin. In Exodus chapter 14, Moses gives the people a real good word that many of us need to take heed to. When God's people begin bickering and complaining because the Egyptians were chasing hard after them, in verse 14 of chapter 14 of Exodus, Moses says, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. There are times when we all need to be silent and remember our deliverance is guaranteed not because we're so smart or talented or healthy, wealthy and wise, but because God is faithful and he will do the fighting for you. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Then why are you fighting? Why are you fighting? And from our text, we see that Jesus wasn't run out of Nazareth because God wasn't fighting for him. On the contrary, he was driven, driven, driven to Zebulun in Capernaum because God is faithful. He keeps his word. Zebulun is exactly where Jesus needed to be, according to the scriptures. Matthew 4, verses 15 and 16 say, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. I want you to turn there with me for a minute, right? I want you to get the big picture of what was happening. This scripture had to be fulfilled. And I want you to go back to chapter 8 and verse 16 of Isaiah. And we're going to read right through. We're going to read right through to 1 and 2, and then I'm going to jump to verses uh, 6 and 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. So for right now, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 16. At this time, the people had forgotten God. 
God's people had forgotten him. They didn't believe, especially the king, didn't believe that God could keep them safe and protect them from the enemy who was about to come. And they had turned to false spirituality and the secular world for their comfort. And they were in a much worse spiritual condition. Sounds familiar. Verse 16 of Isaiah chapter 8 says, Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. Isaiah speaking to his disciples, right? They were God's faithful remnant. And they had the responsibility of maintaining written records of his prophecies. Verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? to the teaching, and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Remember, meaning no light. Keep that in mind. They're doing this because they have no light. Verse 21, they will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and, I will, and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Chapter 9, verse 1. But, I love the but right there. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now just move down to verse 6 and it will become very familiar of the situation and circumstances and time that is being spoken of. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And remember these last words, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it will do this. Do you know personally all of the turmoil, the wars, the conquests that took place over the 700 years plus that went by between Isaiah's prophecy and its fulfillment in Matthew chapter 4? How about the kings, monarchs, and pharaohs that reigned in that region over that time? If you don't, that's okay. God knows. He was there and he wasn't an idle bystander. He raised up kings and took them down for his glory and great purposes. 
Then at the, the appropriate time, God brought forth his son, born of a woman. And it's all because the zeal of the Lord of hosts could not be denied. So here he is, fulfilling prophecy in Zebulun, Galilee of the Gentiles. For those who don't know, Galilee was divided into upper and lower Galilee. Upper Galilee was called Galilee of the Gentiles because it was occupied chiefly by Gentiles. Zebulun was located in Upper Galilee. To the Jews, it was a dark and despised place. So Matthew's quotation can be quoted this way. In Upper Galilee, the place where those despised Gentiles live, a place overrun by darkness because they are not God's people and are unclean and unrighteous, to that place, the light of Christ has come. What makes this even more special is the next verse, going back to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It was in this little city, which was populated mostly by Gentiles, that Jesus began his public ministry. This passage reveals to us that this particular prophecy that the Messiah was promised to the Gentiles was a foreshadowing of Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, that the gospel would be taken to all nations. And this passage also reveals to us that if the messianic light dawned in the darkest places like Zebulun amongst the Gentiles, then salvation can only be by grace and grace alone. Jesus going to the Gentiles this early proves Jesus came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance by grace through faith alone. Not Jewish ancestry, not Jewish tradition, not laws, sacraments, but grace. It has always been by grace. That's the thread that runs throughout the entire Bible. The Apostle Paul sums it up, sorry, the Apostle John sums it up perfectly in John chapter 1, verse 13, when he says, We were born, meaning birth into the family of God, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. The free will of God did it. God did not look down the corridors of time to see who would choose him and then he chose them. That's illogical. And remember the scripture, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's scripture. That's not me making it up. The Bible teaches that it was from before the foundation of the world that God chose a people unto himself to be holy and blameless. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 and Romans chapter 9. And according to Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 and 17 verse 8, God wrote the names of all the people whom he would save in the Lamb's book of life which means Noah wasn't chosen because God saw how good he was and how perfect he was. The scripture, even in Genesis 6, says Noah found 
grace. And consider Jacob. Jacob wasn't saved because he was a great guy. When it comes to the reason why Jacob was favored over his twin brother Esau, Romans chapter 9 verse 11 says, it wasn't due to anything they had done either good or bad, but it was in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls from beginning to end. Salvation is by grace and grace alone. After the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, after the wedding at Cana, after the cleansing of the temple, after the late night meeting with Nicodemus, from that time forward, beginning in a city populated chiefly by Gentiles, Jesus began to proclaim loudly, boldly, and consistently, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His message was an exact echo of what John the Baptist came saying from the Jordan. It was also the exact message that Jesus would tell his disciples in Luke chapter 24 verse 47 before he ascended. He told them that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Starting from where they were and expanding to all nations, they were commissioned to preach repentance. It's not legalism, Phariseeism, fundamentalism, or any other ism that has to do with being saved through our good works. It's working out what's already in us. If the light of Christ shines in any heart that previously was darkened, repentance is the natural, or should I say supernatural, response to sin. Some say repentance is just the other side of the same coin as faith. You can't say I have faith and not repent. It's, they go together. They are, they are so close. Without repentance, our testimony is garbage. It, it, it's garbage. It is literally excess waste to all who hear how much of a Christian we are when we refuse to turn from our fleshly ways. Outside of the home is bad enough. But think of the damage that is done inside of the home when repentance is absent. When the professing Christian husband is often ill-mannered, ill-toned, ill-behaved, sarcastic, and bitter with his wife, which goes exact, directly opposite of 1 Peter 3, 7 and Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, 1 Peter 3, 7, and Ephesians 5, 25 through 30, 33. He's totally disobedient to those scriptures and many more, but yet he still can't understand why she struggles to submit to his leadership. And on the other side, the wife can't continue to profess her love for God when she continues to disobey Ephesians 5, 33 by disrespecting her husband on a regular basis. And she must not disobey 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 4 and 5, by withholding intimacy because she feels that's the only real power she has. There must be a humble godliness that pursues true 
repentance. Nobody wants to hear about our God when our behavior is ungodly. We must live in such a way that the light of Christ shines within us brightly, regardless of the darkness all around us, especially in our households. Remember, the light of Christ shines in the darkest places and the darkness will not overcome it. We are the only ones on earth who are equipped as many lights, many lights in this dark world. So whatever situation we find ourselves in, we must shine bright as an instrument of righteousness in the Redeemer's hands. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your words, Lord. I thank you that you are so good to us, that we have scriptures that tell us when we're wrong, and I thank you that this morning many scriptures were given. And I, and I pray that it would be the scriptures that turn people's heart from their own ways to your ways. And turns people's heart from their fears, anxieties, depression, to the promises that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. You will do it, Lord God, not us. May we place no confidence in the flesh. May we not look to our own deeds, our own abilities, Lord God. Please show us ourselves. Show us our sin. Show us our lack of faith in you. Please forgive us for our sinfulness, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.